Hey everyone and welcome back to the Talk Dental To Me podcast. If you've not been here before, my name is Emma and I'm an oral health therapist based in Melbourne, Australia. And I created this podcast so that we can learn from each other, learn together about new innovations, different research and learn from other healthcare professionals. So today's episode is a different one and it's a topic that I honestly did not know a huge amount of by myself and so I knew that other dental professionals and other health professionals would be in the same boat as well and today we're talking about representation in dentistry and what that means for clinical and non-clinical outcomes and also practical applications that you can implement in your clinic now. So I have Hassan Sharif who is a teaching and academic clinical fellow, incredible, at the University of Highlands in Scotland. So Hassan is just a wealth of information and he is currently Um, involved in lots of advocacy to do with representation in dentistry and also implementing it within his own course at uh, the University of Highlands in Scotland. So we are going to define a few terms so you guys can understand exactly what representation means as well as representation in dentistry and also how this will benefit, most importantly, our patients at the end of the day. And then, of course, how clinicians can also, you know, provide better care for minority groups. So this episode is really enlightening. And again, I know you guys are going to learn so much. And if there's a colleague or even your boss you want to share this podcast episode to, please don't forget to share it to at least one colleague because I know that they are going to learn something from this. Thank you so much for listening to the Talk Dental To Me podcast again. I really appreciate your support. Thank you for following along and listening and sharing. Let's jump straight into the episode. Hi Hassan, welcome to the Talk Dental To Me podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. So everyone, Hassan is my first British guest on my podcast. So I'm really, really excited for this one because I think everyone will be really keen to learn about the role of dental therapists and dental hygienists in the UK and what that education process is like. And just to learn more about what Hassan does, because it's really, really interesting. And he's taken a non-conventional route to his career quite early on. So I think that'll be great to learn about if anyone's interested in that particular space. But I'll stop rambling on and let Hassan introduce himself. (laughs) So tell us a bit about yourself, Hassan. How did you get into dentistry and why dentistry? Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. That was really nice. You're definitely right. My kind of entry into dentistry was like less than conventional. If I'm honest, when I first thought about dentistry, I literally flipped through a university's courses and I just picked a random one that seemed a bit health orientated. And that is literally how I ended up into it. Like, it was honestly the pressure, like, coming from a South Asian family, like, they kind of put a bit of pressure on to me into, like, going into a healthcare 
based role. So I picked a random one and I'm just so lucky that I ended up in a career that I really love. You picked well. <laughs> oh, good. Honestly, it worked out so good. So pretty much from after leaving high school, I entered university. Now I did a degree, like a foundation qualification in dental nursing. And I went straight from that foundation qualification to my bachelor's. So I never actually practiced as a dental nurse. I just gained this kind of insight into dentistry, which helped me realize I wanted to progress further. So following that, I did my bachelor's in dental therapy. And then I actually practiced as a dental therapist in the UK for about two years. So actually quite a short amount of time considering where I ended up because I'm now, as you know, a clinical and academic educator. So I feel really fortunate to have got here so quickly. (laughs) Absolutely. And for you, when working clinically, what sort of prompted the move to education? I'd say the move to education, actually, I knew really early on. And the, as you know, in Australia, it seems pretty similar, but our role is so preventative. Like we spend mm. so much of our time being educators on that individual level and for me, it was more the shock of I was seeing patients who had been seeing a dental therapist for years upon years and things which I expected the patients to know, they didn't know. And I was surprised that previous practitioners hadn't been relaying things like, I guess, the importance of understanding what the biofilm is. Mm. And for me, from that early kind of early onset of my career, I've always kind of thought that we don't actually have to really simplify and dumb things down for patients like they can understand things most of the time as well as we can especially if we find the right way to relay it so it kind of prompted me that I wanted to be in the career that I'm in now to help kind of like the next generation of therapists relay things the way I felt like I was doing (laughs) yes well that's really really important because it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all when we speak to patients and try to educate patients so it's important to learn better ways and also different ways now before we get into the juicy part of our podcast together can you explain to us the role of a dental therapist in the uk because i see a lot of that on instagram i'm a dental therapist so are they two different qualifications being a dental hygienist and a dental therapist or is that both so basically I'll give you a short narrative, a brief history. The dental therapist role in the UK, it basically kind of originated around the First and Second World War. So Mm. we were basically kind of, we were called dental auxiliaries and we were just providing Mm. assistance to the dentist just to kind of help because so many men were drafted off to the war. Mm. But in terms of the dental therapist role and actually seeing the public it didn't become quite apparent until like the early 2000s so that's when things became a bit more prominent in the fact that we could actually practice inside general dental practices rather than this auxiliary role for a long time it was just dental hygienists I mean dental therapists they have always existed but Mm -hmm. what we could do with patients without the prescription of a dentist was very very limited 
it still is like that. I mean, it's like that globally, but we can now see patients through something called direct access. So therapists are becoming a lot more prominent. Direct access in the UK basically means that a patient can come and see a hygienist or a therapist without having to see a dentist first. And it is that which has kind of really revolutionised how much we do. That's fantastic. It's sort of similar here in Australia where I'm not sure how it works with you guys in the UK. Do you have your own provider number? And so you practice independently? So on the National Health Service in the UK, Mm. therapists aren't allowed a provider number. So the dentist has a provider number and they're the Mm. ones who can open a treatment plan and then they prescribe the therapist treatment. Gotcha, gotcha. But privately we can see patients without the need of anything like a provider number. We just have Mm. to obviously be registered to our governing body. Yes. So it's sort of similar here. So we have to be registered to our governing body and have our own individual indemnity insurance. But recently legislation has changed that we can apply for our own provider numbers. So that's really opened the door for us in terms of providing treatment. So dental practitioners in terms of OHTs and dental hygienists, we can have our own businesses now. So I've seen a lot of OHTs and dental hygienists in the last one-ish, two-ish years, set up their own like mobile practices, provide services to rural and remote communities. So it really opens the doors for great reach of care for those communities, which is amazing. So another reason why I wanted to have you on the podcast, Hassan, is your amazing work and your role in advocating for representation in dentistry. You've done a lot of great work and advocacy. I've seen articles in dentistry.co.uk and I just want everyone else to learn about it as well. And also I think it's important to define a few terms so everyone can be on the same page as we unravel this conversation and then just also have really great learning experience with everybody so can we start with defining a few terms is that okay yeah that sounds good to me awesome so let's define diversity what is diversity so diversity in general it has a really broad definition and it's basically just a state of variety but we kind of have to always take diversity a little bit further and consider it in terms of a concept of inclusion so I describe diversity as a concept which empowers people and it basically allows everybody's differences to be respected and valued. And to encompass this concept into practice, we basically need to consider every member of a society or a culture. So we're not just considering people who are in positions of power or people who are Mm. the majority. And then When I say diversity and representation, even with representation, it's about going beyond that literal definition because representation basically just means somebody acting on behalf of another person. And that's not really what we're trying to encompass in the concept Mm. of diversity. So if we consider representation as an equality-based concept, it's basically equal representation. And this means Mm. that people who are in position to make a change or people who are in position to influence a larger population, these people should share some of the attributes of the population they're actually influencing. So 
ideally, if we have somebody who's in power, they should represent <laughs> their population, not just a small amount or a small portion of that population. And that becomes really difficult because when I say a small portion, like what if the majority of the population are just one type of person? What about the rest of the people? They become the smaller part. But we want everybody to be represented when it comes to representation. Absolutely. And I think we can both really relate to this as I think we might be similar age, but also our cultural backgrounds and our upbringing. So we probably went through the same things in primary school and high school and trying to navigate, you know, growing up in a world where representation really wasn't, you know, advocated back then. And all the Disney Mm -hmm. princesses were, you know, beautiful blondes and brunettes and thank goodness it's come a long way since then where we're now seeing you know east asian we're now seeing filipino we're now seeing you know so much more representation in social media and also in movies and hollywood and all that sort of stuff which is fantastic but like you said this is also really important in education as well so just so everyone can really hear it and you know, soak it in. Why is representation important in education or more specifically dentistry? I always find this like a little bit of a challenging question, but only Mm. because so many different aspects intertwine when we consider representation. So I'm going to kind of summarise what I mean by things intertwining. So Mm -hmm. when we advocate for representation we're basically hoping that people who are in positions of power reflect the population that they're trying to influence and Mm -hmm. this is important because the general population is no longer this is basically predominantly due to colonization the general population in most countries especially in the western world it doesn't consist of just one race so let's take the uk In the UK, there is approximately 66.8 million people. Now, about 14.4% of this population are from a minority ethnic background. And of this 14.4%, about 4 million are Asian citizens. So South Asian, East Asian, Mm -hmm. and over 1.9 million are black citizens. So this includes Mm -hmm. your Caribbean black citizens and your African black citizens. We've got basically a very diverse population with multiple races and multiple ethnicities. Mm -hmm. Now, ethnicity and race are determinants of health. So we know that ethnicity and race are linked to health and minority groups have poorer health outcomes. Mm -hmm. And we also know that people from minority ethnic groups are evidenced to be from backgrounds of a lower socioeconomic status. So basically, so far, we've basically covered that ethnicity and race are linked to poorer health outcomes as well as lower socioeconomic status. But if we look at these factors, socioeconomic status is also linked to health and socioeconomic status is also linked to education. So if somebody has poorer educational outcomes, they're more likely to be from a lower socioeconomic status but if you're from a ethnic background 
where you're more likely to be from a lower socioeconomic status, your basically risk of having poorer health is then doubled. And people from ethnic backgrounds are actually evidenced to also have poorer educational outcomes and poorer quality of employment. So all of these factors link in together to dictate quality of life. So for me, representation in education is important because if we can get people from minority backgrounds who have experienced some of these challenges Mm -hmm. into positions of power, they can then see people who are struggling and advocate change. This then means that people who are less than privileged now have a chance to have better educational outcomes, better socioeconomic status, better quality employment, and as a consequence, better health. So it all links from that early education to a final quality of life. Now in dentistry, it's relevant because we see such an array of patients. So we're not only just thinking about, okay, we want our minority ethnic dental students to thrive. Not only do we want them to thrive, but we then want them to go into practice and be able to see and treat patients from these varieties of backgrounds and really allow the care to be tailored and personalized and holistic. And without representation in education, we can't give students an accurate insight into these patients' lives. Because instead of the description of these patients being true, it becomes more narrative and based on media. So then we get things like implicit bias, we get things like the usage of stereotypes, and patients end up being subjected to poor quality care because their clinicians don't understand their background. And I can actually give you a personal example of that. Mm-hmm. When I was in practice, so this was one of the practices I worked at before I made the change to being an educator. Yes. One of the orthodontists who was at the practice, now she was of Greek origin, very educated in the importance of understanding the differences in values people hold. And she basically advocated that we implement pronouns into our medical history forms and I remember it being like such a huge topic of discussion with the practice manager who basically stated they didn't know what pronouns were the practice manager said something like oh you know me I'm old-fashioned like tell me a bit more about that and straight away our patients then who do come from these backgrounds are basically they're suffering because we're not taking into account their personal beliefs and this is why I think it's so important to really ingrain this knowledge in practitioners from a university level because not only did the practice manager say that a fellow clinician also said oh I don't know what non-binary means I don't know what pronouns are but then how are you making sure your patients feel comfortable Mm. and that is really crazy (laughs) sorry it was so comprehensive but it's because everything links into each other so intensely when it comes to representation yeah it's not just oh like we need representation so students feel better it links to everything else as well but of course student um, 
the mental health is something we do take into account as well. Mm, mm. Thank you for breaking that down <laughs> so comprehensively. It was just a really good eye opener and it's nice to hear it again, but really understand all those factors that surround it because it is something that I know other dental professionals are thinking about and wanting to learn more about. And Australia also is very multicultural. It always has been, especially in Melbourne, where I live. Like we are known to be the multicultural city of Australia. There are people from all corners of the globe that live in Melbourne. So it's definitely something that's really relevant to us as well. But just in general, Australia is very multicultural. And like you said, it does need to start at the education level because then not only are we prioritizing the mental health and of minority groups, but also their peers as well. And also having that knowledge from early on really affects how they enter the workforce and again, the quality of care that they can provide to these individuals and also these communities. And I also do understand, you know, I totally can relate to you in terms of, I guess, growing up, like I'm first gen here in Australia and, you know, the transitions that my parents had to make coming here, it's really difficult. And to have someone, you know, in that went through that process, you know, in a position of education and being able to advocate for this is really, really important. Like you said, if this isn't happening, it's just a narrative or stereotypes that could potentially be put on these communities and that's not right. So I love the work that you're doing. Thank you. <laughs> no worries. Honestly, I think, honestly, I was discussing it with a fellow colleague and what I want from my career in education mm. is I don't want it to always be individual conversations on equality on representation what I'd really love is for at the core of programs equality and equity and diversity to be just naturally ingrained so it's a small topic here and there so it's not basically this matter that we have to actively think about it becomes subconsciously mm. part of us yes i recently adjusted a module for the course that i teach on so as you know i teach dental therapists and i came across some content which was actually quite like I'd say outdated. It was basically discussing how the oral health of certain ethnicities can be poorer because of health risk behaviours. So there was one fact and figure which basically stated that South Asian patients are more predisposed to oral cancer because they engage with beetle nut chewing. And whilst we do know that this is a fact, and we do know that certain members of the South Asian population do engage in that health risk behavior. The way it was written was so generic that I had to change it and be like, okay, we know that this is a health risk behavior, but we also know that post-colonization, these ethnic communities were actually subject to quite a lot of Western traits. So if we basically go straight into treating a South Asian patient and we straight away presume that they're chewing beet or not, that becomes quite stereotypical and that can actually be offensive. We need to approach things with a lot more transparency because this allows patients to 
feel comfortable and openly disclose these matters with us. There was a study conducted by a UK charity and it was basically on non-binary patients. So a little bit different, but the overall kind of consensus from the study, it was by the Scottish Trans Alliance. They basically felt that when non-binary patients didn't feel represented in a service, the patients felt that their gender identity wasn't valid. They felt violated. They also felt that their self-esteem and mental health were negatively impacted. And they also felt that they were less likely to access a service. So representation in terms of a dental practice or a dental practitioner is important because we don't want our patients feeling that they don't want to come into us and they don't want to be transparent with us. That same Mm -hmm. survey found that 60% of non-binary patients didn't actually even feel comfortable disclosing their gender identity to the practitioner because they were Mm -hmm. basically fearful of being discriminated. And that's where I think if we can ingrain the importance of diversity into our base education, practitioners will graduate and they won't sit there and be like, oh, well, I don't know what non-binary is. They will readily be able to be aware and they will not be presumptuous and they'll make an environment very comfortable for these patients. Mm. On that same topic when it comes to non-binary patients, because when I talk about diversity, I'm talking about everyone. So it's ethnicity, race, gender, sex, sexual orientation. A practitioner said to me, they were like, well, okay, somebody may have this gender identity, but at the end of the day, dentistry is binary. When you open your mouth, teeth are teeth. I... I laughed because I was like, okay, yes, maybe teeth are teeth. But first of all, we're not treating a mouth. We're treating a patient. Treating a person, yeah. Yeah, we're treating a patient. We need to make this environment comfortable. And also, I thought about it further. And I was like, actually, when we think about oral health, things aren't as strict as the male and sex chromosomes as we think they are, especially with patients having the options now in healthcare to basically accept their true gender identity. I saw a study, I saw a few actually, there was a study in the archives of oral biology in 2022 and it basically stated that reduced testosterone affects pain perception in patients with TMJ disorders. There was another study in 2011 in the Journal of Oral Science, which suggested that reduced testosterone affects bone density and likelihood of tooth loss. So for patients who may be going through a transitional journey and going through hormonal changes, actually their oral health is impacted. So things aren't as strict as we once thought they were. And it's not even just about actually making the patient comfortable. Now we've actually got to think about actually how a patient identifies also does affect their oral health as well. Yeah. And that's so important because, you know, we talk all the time about oral health and systemic health and that it was well intertwined with all of that there. So thank you for bringing that up. I'm going to look more into that. So. <laughs> That's all right. Running with what you said before about increasing representation in practice, what are some practical ways that if someone listening to this was like, yes, I really want to 
you know, move this forward in my own practice, what are some practical ways that they could maybe start? So it isn't always easy if everybody isn't on the same page. And I think having the staff in general being of the same mindset helps a lot. So I would always start with a continuing professional development course for everybody to ensure that staff are using the correct terminology to ensure that they're aware of stereotypes and aware of unconscious racial bias because that way we're straight away addressing the issue at its core and then we can start implementing policies which benefit patients i would ensure that the practice has appropriate signage so the practice should advocate that it's a safe place in the uk we have the equality act 2010 and Mm -hmm. our equality act basically provides protection against characteristics like sexual orientation and race so having signage which advocates these acts makes the practice automatically seem like it's a safe space for these patients We can ask patients if they have a preferred pronoun, we can implement that into our dental records. That makes them feel that we're treating them as a whole and not just their mouth, not Mm -hmm. just their mouth. I think we should, considering that study stated that patients felt that they were at an increased risk of being violated or presenting as non-binary i think we should definitely ensure that patients are made aware of our complaint procedures i think we should make complaint procedures really easy because if a patient has basically been discriminated against by a practitioner straight away the practice management should know and that should be addressed so it doesn't happen again Mm. i think practices should utilize imagery in brochures and adverts that they produce, which represent the whole population and not just one type of person. I also think that, (laughs) I'm going on, I've got a few ideas here. I I also think that practices can show support by showing that they're supporting charities relevant to minority groups, relevant to members from the LGBTQIA communities. So having fundraisers, having visible donation boxes, allowing staff to wear badges or bands which reflect these charities that's really important too because then our patients can basically see oh yeah like I'm safe here in my last practice I was really advocating for a gender neutral bathroom facility I definitely can understand for members of the population who aren't fully aware of things like gender variations that this can seem quite confusing but having a gender neutral facility makes our patients who are going through a transitioning process feel safer so it might be that because we also have to understand that people do have different views and if somebody has a different view because of religion it isn't necessarily our role to start arguing with them obviously we don't accept intolerance but we need to accommodate everyone so in facilities when it comes to changing rooms and bathrooms i think like okay if you want to have a male bathroom and you want to have a female bathroom also try and incorporate a gender neutral facility just so everyone is given the opportunity to feel safe and feel welcomed and then just going on the matter of training I don't think it should be a like we send members of staff on one course and that's it like 
it should be reviewed. There should be audits to see if staff have retained that knowledge. And if not, then the knowledge should be reassessed, reprovided over time. All those great ideas, everyone. There's no excuse now. <laughs> you had about, about 10 there. Thank you, Hassan. I really appreciate it. I love your worldview and I think that's really, really important and what you touched based on before about, you know, if someone may have a different view based on their religion, but it's important to understand that. And yeah, we all have different worldviews, but that's why education is so important. You know, we do have to be empathetic to everyone's different, you know, views and religion or whatever, but we need to approach everything empathetically rather than like condemning or rather than saying, you know, pointing a finger. So I really, really love that about you. (laughs) Thank you. I definitely agree. I feel like conflict isn't the way forward because conflict makes Mm. people close off and become defensive. Whereas if we open discussion, we can, I genuinely believe like through open and kind discussions, we can make the world like a more welcoming place where diversity genuinely flourishes. I agree with you. And I also wanted to ask you just before we wrap up, even though we could talk all day, I wanted to (laughs) ask you, how can practitioners reach the academic role? I know it's quite different in other areas of the world, but let's chat about the UK because that's where you are. We don't generally see people, you know, practice for two years and then go into an education role. Usually that happens maybe nine or 10 years down the track and even when people do sort of take that route, maybe it's just demonstrating in clinic. What that means here is being in practicals with patients and being that teacher that signs off on patients' clinical work. So how did that happen for you? Did you have to do extra study? And I know you did, (laughs) but could you please tell everyone how that happened for you? So I've genuinely been so passionate about it because of the fact that I believe that education can increase our understanding of diversity and it can in the long term increase health outcomes so I applied like (laughs) I applied really early on into my career the feedback I got is like we gave you an interview because we loved your enthusiasm but you have like no postgraduate experience (laughs) and I was like thank you for the good feedback Basically, so I really took keen. that feedback on board. <laughs> yeah. So we're like, we love your enthusiasm, but you need to study a little bit more. <laughs> and I, so I took that feedback on board. And I mean, just like globally, you can do master's courses across the globe. In the UK, when you embark on a master's degree, there's basically three stages of exit. So you start on the course and you can exit at level one, which is a postgraduate certificate, level two, which is a postgraduate diploma, and then level three is the full master's. So when I got that feedback, I went and studied a postgraduate certificate in public health just to kind of widen my knowledge on implementing policies at a national level rather than just an individual level. And also at the same time, I tried to like increase some of my experience in implementing interventions at a local level. So by local, I mean just not in practice. I basically did some work with, I'm trying to remember the acronym. I feel like it's GSK. Have you heard of GSK? The, <laughs> our brand, GSK? Yeah. Yeah. 
GSK is I'm trying to get the full name for it. Oh, so Glaxo Smith Klein. Glaxo Smith Klein. Mm. Yeah, they work with the Sensodyne range. Do you have Sensodyne yes, in Australia? We do. <laughs> nice. Yeah, so I did some work with GSK in some shopping malls where basically we were trialing out an intraoral camera and giving patients free exams and showing them oh, like so areas cool. of decay. Yeah, it was really fun. And that was like, honestly, like three months after I graduated where I did that. But it was basically trying to increase my knowledge on interventional care at a higher level than just one to one with a patient. So through this experience, I applied again a few years later with also having the additional clinical experience. And I was so lucky to get this role. But traditionally, for a educator role, especially in the UK, you basically need around four years clinical experience in more than one setting. So not just the private setting, ideally also the National Health Service, maybe even community settings. You'd also ideally need some sort of teaching experience and a relevant postgraduate certificate for most of these roles. The postgraduate certificate is in higher education and tertiary education. There are some courses which do tertiary education in the healthcare field. So that is kind of like the ideal route to get to the educator position. It's the Mm -hmm. clinical experience, the teaching experience, which could be volunteering, and also then doing the postgraduate course in teaching. So I did my postgraduate certificate in public health. And now that I've started my teaching journey, I'm starting a master's of education in September, which I'm really excited for. Wow, look at you go. My gosh. You are amazing. That's that's so inspiring. There you go, everybody. If you want to make change right at the core like Hassan, you heard it here, that's what you need to do. And you can do it earlier on in your career. You don't have to wait, you know, nine, <laughs> ten years. You really like can. People do that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Hassan. Everybody, it's like 10 p.m. in the UK. We really found it – wow, the time difference was so crazy trying to tee up this podcast. So thank you. I know <laughs> you're probably – needing some good rest after a day at work but i really appreciate your time today and your expertise and your passion it's really inspirational so i'd love to have you on again in the future but thank you thank you so much for having me honestly it was so good to finally actually talk to you properly rather than just on instagram like usual (laughs) no i loved this well until next time we'll speak soon bye you reach the end here thank you so much for listening to yet another episode of the talk dental to me podcast i really appreciate your support and please don't forget to share it with a peer or a colleague or your boss if this episode you think will help them if you have any idea or any special guests that you have in mind that you'd like to have on the podcast please do email me or send me a dm on emma talks teeth or at the talk dental to me podcast until next time take care guys bye